Amen. You may be seated. Well, I invite you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6. We're actually going to finish this chapter this morning. We're taking a, a larger section now, verses 9 through 20. And I think it will be a, a welcome relief to the warning passage that we've just come out of, verses 1 through 8. And before we read it, I just wanted to inform you, if you have, weren't aware, there's a growing body of, of research on the concept of hope. There's even scientific research suggesting that those who have hope are better off physically, psychologically, and socially. Researchers acknowledge that trauma can have a negative impact upon the, the capacity for some to experience hope. Um, for instance, you know, a fatal diagnosis from a doctor can deplete every ounce of willpower to pursue any other goal in life. Um, so that seems, seems obvious. But Chan Hellman, a professor of Oklahoma State University, studied the power and the science of hope. And he wanted to kind of share this message with his students and, of course, with anyone uh, who, who needs this message. Here's how he defines it. He says, hope is the belief that your future will be better than today and that you have the power to make it so. Now other than seeing hope as more than wishful thinking, which, which we would agree with, this definition is, it falls far short of the biblical vision of hope and the biblical explanation of hope. Right? It offers nothing in regard to eternal hope. And of course, while being an optimistic person is generally going to to, to lead to more success than the person who is perpetually pessimistic in life. Uh, that's, this is not the goal of the passage in Hebrews, right? It sets that goal much higher for the believer as we think about this concept of hope. Let me just briefly remind you, the author of Hebrews has been making this case that Jesus is better, that he's, he's greater, he's superior to everything, and if you turn away from him, there's, there's nothing better for you to turn to. It's only loss. And yet due to the fact that at least some in this audience that he's writing to had grown dull of hearing, as he said in chapter 5, verse 11, he's concerned that some of them at least will fall away, that some of them maybe are being led astray by some false hope. And so we've spent the last several weeks covering that warning. We come now to this shift in argument where he, he follows that stern warning with a lengthy reflection upon true hope. So let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding it before we read it. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word and we thank you for this passage that comes on the heels of one of the harshest warnings to read uh, in this book. And to recognize that that warning is for the covenant community. But Lord, we, we now hear this hopeful passage, this, this reflection upon um, 
what the author and his companions desire for not only the community that he was writing to, but all who would read this letter in future generations, including us. When we are in despair, when we are doubting, when we face temptation on every side, how can we look forward to the future with hope? How can we stand fast in that? Lord, help us to understand that this morning. Give us the the eyes to see that truth and the ears to hear and respond to it. Lord, soften our hearts. We might be obedient doers of your word and not hearers only. For your glory, we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Read with me Hebrews chapter 6, beginning in verse 9. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for, the, for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragements to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Amen. This is God's holy word. Well, our first vow of membership in the PCA states, ask this question. Do you acknowledge yourself to be a sinner in the sight of God, justly deserving his displeasure and without hope, save in his sovereign mercy? You have to begin by taking a vow, or as we just read, taking an oath that you acknowledge yourself to be a sinner without hope apart from Christ. All right, so the first step in obtaining the hope of salvation is actually recognizing that we enter life without it. We have to acknowledge that, that we need hope. And this passage here gives us the alternative, right? That this, infallible, this infallible assurance of our faith is founded upon the certainty of the promises of our salvation. For hope to be genuine and true, it's got to be grounded and founded in the certainty of the promises of God. 
the assurance that he will do what he has said he will do. And so the first point we'll look at is verse 9 through 12. Do you desire the assurance of hope? We're going to ask three questions this morning, and I'm hoping that you'll take some time to reflect upon these, uh, your own answers to these questions in response, whether it be by yourself, with your family, um, throughout the week, that you think about these things. So the first question I want you to ask yourself is, do you desire the assurance of hope? And he starts off here saying that he is sure of better things. Though we speak in this way, verse 9, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. Now he's using the you know, first-person plural here, we, talking about himself and his companions who are with him. Right? They're, they're reflecting upon this community that's going through tribulation and trial, and likely in Rome, as we've said in the, the introduction of this sermon series. And he's, he's acknowledging that they have hope for this community, that they, they're, they're in fact confident. They've seen God at work among them. They're sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. In other words, verses, the verses prior to this have been discussing things that may not belong to salvation. They, they, may, they may fall short of that. The description of experiences in verses 4 through 8, things that, that may leave someone under a false impression right? Hypocrites, in other words. Those who might have been a part of the covenant community for a time, but departed revealing their lack of faith. And so the author here and his companions are confident that this community will produce the fruit of repentance and that the threatened curse would not fall upon them. Remember, the the ending warning was this analogy of of um, apostasy, an analogy of two fields, right? Both receiving the same rain, one cultivated, planted with seed and ready to respond with fruit, and one about ready to be cursed. That's only producing from the rain thorns and thistles. That all, all language of the wrath of God coming in judgment. And so the same rain is falling upon them. And now he's saying, we're confident that you're like the field that was cultivated. You've responded. You've shown fruit of repentance. So the warning given in that previous section doesn't negate their charitable esteem for him, for, for this community. Right? They, they, they look at them with confidence and hope. The warning doesn't say, I, I'm, not, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm no longer confident or I'm, or I'm you know, it's, it's part of the, the way in which he's, teaching them and it's part of the way in which he's encouraging them and stirring up the grace of God that he has seen at work in them that's hard to accept sometimes I think some of us we we recoil at the idea of warning so much that it's like you must hate me if you warn me that's that's not true of any parent (laughs) right we warn those we we love we we warn we discipline in love to train up our children God does the same with us. So he sends this warning, and it's not, a rec- it's not the idea that I'm warning you because I have no hope in you, that you're a hopeless lot. That's not true at all. The author acknowledges instead their loving service in verse 10. Right? He says that God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. 
You have a, a reputation of loving one another, of serving one another, of sacrificing your time and your talents and your treasures to, to care for each other. And that's consistent, again, with the field that's been cultivated that is responding to, to the rain that God has sent of his word with blessing, with fruit. So these saints have a reputation of exemplary service toward one another, even in the midst of their own tribulation and persecution. This, in effect, is the recognition that God's spirit is at work among them. It's not to suggest that their love and works are perfect, but that they are done in sincerity through Jesus Christ. Some of the language of our confession and catechism that really comes from Hebrews 13. We'll get to that later, but not everyone was united in their service, and that becomes evident in verse 11. They desire to see them enjoying the same earnestness and full assurance of hope. Meaning that that there's an unequal display of that earnestness, of that desire, and even of that service toward one another. And I I mean, every church would acknowledge that. Every pastor has the 80-20 idea in their minds. Like 80% 80 of the work is done by 20% of the people. Certainly, I think smaller churches like ours don't experience that that drastic of a ratio we kind of depend upon everyone to do something but it's true right there's a there's a difference among us where where we have to draw some people out and we have to we want to see a, a greater a greater balance of the work being done desire to see the whole community persevere to the end. They want to see an earnestness and a full assurance of hope. The author desires that their assurance not waver, but that it be full. He doesn't merely want them to base their hope on a dream or a wish. Wouldn't it be great if we build it, they will come, you know, field of dreams. No, he wants them to have an infallible assurance of faith. That's how the confession puts it in chapter 18, section 2. An infallible assurance of faith that's available to the believer. And so a renewed interest in spiritual maturity would provide the hope of their perseverance. To the contrary, their sluggishness, which he had acknowledged back in chapter 5, verse 11, it's the same word translated dull of hearing there. He now brings up, here at the end in, or in verse 12, so that they may not be sluggish. That sluggishness is not characteristic of those who are inheriting the promises of God through faith and patience. So if he's worried and concerned about some lack of desire that he sees, some, some sluggishness, some dole of hearing that he sees, he's, he's drawing them out of that saying, recognize the promises that you've received. You know, there's, there's fruit that we've witnessed here There's promises that you have, and if you're trusting in those promises, if you're trusting that you will inherit those promises, you will not respond with a sluggishness. It'll draw you out of that so that you can look forward with a full assurance of hope. That's the antidote to a sluggish faith, is a full assurance of hope. And as long as you're looking to Christ... 
that will be victorious. He will be victorious on your behalf. Even though oftentimes we, we face a, a faith that is weakened, a hope that is assailed through tribulation, as clearly they were undergoing. So this encouragement from the author is what all of us need from time to time, right? It stirs up the grace of God within us, wakes us up from our slumber, reminds us that we've been adopted into a family with the promises of an incredibly rich inheritance purchased for us and secured by Christ Jesus. Now, this concept of hope has a, a long history. Um, you've probably heard of Pandora's box. Uh, do you know the ancient Greek mythology behind it? Hesiod wrote the poem in 700 BC about Pandora and this box that was filled with all kinds of evils and miseries. And Zeus orders Pandora to open the box because Prometheus had stolen fire from heaven. And so she has to open this box and let out all of the evils. And when Pandora's box was opened, it, it, it released those evils causing harm upon humans, right? It, it's the explanation for human suffering. Death and sickness are named as falling upon mankind among a host of other unspecified miseries. Most of the miseries that are flying out of the box, it, it doesn't define them for us, but it's just suggesting that all of the evil, sickness, death, and others, it's all, it's all come, coming out of this box. However, what makes the story interesting and applicable to us is the fact that Pandora slams the box before the last evil could escape. And that evil is called elpis, which is the Greek word for hope. Now, in other words, hope remains trapped inside of Pandora's box. There's various theories about why hope remained in the box. Some suggest that hope is evil. Right? It was among all of the other evils in that box. It's evil because it keeps people desiring but never actually attaining. Right, so that's essentially how Nietzsche interpreted it. He wrote that the poem shows hope is in truth the worst of all evils because it protracts the torment of men. It prolongs our torture in this world. It's very consistent with his philosophy, right? That might as well just end the torment and torture yourself. Now, others have suggested that what was trapped was not genuine hope, but it was this kind of deceptive, false expectation. And so this interpretation implies that men are capable of pursuing truth. But there's another optimistic interpretation that suggests that trapping hope inside the box actually preserved it, that Pandora was somehow preserving hope for us rather than holding hope from us. Whatever does, uh, way you take that, whatever, however you answer that question, right, what, the concern for us is, is what is being suggested, right? Is, is, is hope something that we should desire or avoid? I think that that's left up in the air by this poem. 
by Pandora's box. But what it does show at a minimum is that hope is an important topic. It's an elusive concept and a quality that intrigues everyone. Clearly, the Bible does not view hope as an evil thing. But it does emphasize the, the importance of the object of your hope. Right? If your hope is placed in earthly things, it will lead to disappointment. That apart from Christ, you are without hope. Nothing will satisfy. However, hope that is founded in the promises of God will never disappoint. And so true hope is, is modeled in Christian service, as, as he's seen among this community. So based upon this 3,000-year-old 3, discrepancy regarding hope and its impact upon society, whether it's good for us or bad for us, I think it's a question that is prudent for us to answer. Do you desire the assurance of hope? Or do you see it the way the world sees it? Sort of just this thing that's always off in the distance that you'll never be able to reach. Among the community receiving this letter, it would seem that they had lost hope, or at least they were in the process of losing hope, showing no real earnestness to gain it back. And like the writer, my desire is that we would, that would not be the case for you. May the Lord grant each of us this earnest pursuit of the full assurance of hope until the end. And we can overcome our sluggishness in the same way that he's calling them to, to imitate the faith and patience of the saints who have persevered. Now, we can prioritize the biblical models that we find. And in fact, in the next section, that's where he's going to go. He's going to look to Abraham as an example right, of, of, of one who persevered in faith and patience. And he'll do that again when we get to Hebrews 11, right? Multiple examples there of, of the heroes of the faith, the hall of faith, as it's been called. We can look to those. But we can also look among those who are older and wiser, persevering saints, even in our own midst. Right? Looking for those who might model for us patience and faith. A routine service of the saints. Modeled, it's modeled every week here as we gather together. Finding saints to imitate is one way to build a present confidence in hope which will motivate perseverance. And so ask the Lord to guide you in that, even this morning. But desiring the, the right kind of hope is exemplified by Abraham, and that's what he looks to next in verses 13 through 15, and it leads us to this second question. Have you obtained the assurance of hope? Have you obtained the assurance of hope? So do you desire the assurance of hope, and have you obtained it? Here the author provides an example of someone his audience should imitate and one that they would be eager to imitate. Of course we would want to be like Abraham. So he points out that God swore by himself in order to provide Abraham with the greatest possible confidence in the covenant promises that he gave to him. He promised Abraham blessing and multiplication. This is almost a direct quote out of Genesis chapter 22, verse 17, there in verse 14. But it's a, a truncated quote talking about bless, the blessing and multiplication that God had promised to him. Right? He's, he's emphasizing one aspect of that blessing, really, multiplication. 
God had promised that he would make Abraham into a great nation in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. But he would have to wait another 25 years before he even received the heir of that promise. He receives the promise when he's 75. And then he doesn't receive, or he doesn't uh, meet Isaac until he's 100. Isaac's arrival, note this, Isaac's arrival was not the fulfillment of that promise. That's not a nation. That's merely the beginning of the fulfillment of the promise. He had to wait 25 years to even see that. And so even then, God tested Abraham's faith by asking him to sacrifice his son as a burnt offering. Genesis 22, verse 2. So there was probably no greater example the author could have pointed to than the father of our faith, Abraham. He's a premier model of patient faith. So Abraham obtains the promise, it says, after waiting patiently in verse 15. Now he heard the the covenant promise when he was 75. You can read that in Genesis 12. He participated in a ceremonial renewal of the covenant promise at some point over the next decade in Genesis 15, and we're going to look at that in a moment. But he did not see the blessing of Isaac's arrival until he was 100. You can read that in Genesis 22. He waited 25 years to behold the first member of this promised nation. And maybe some of you are thinking, we also know his patience was not perfect. I remember Hagar and Ishmael. Genesis 16, Abraham was 86 years old when Ishmael was born to his Egyptian maidservant, Hagar, not a child of the promise. That's all part of Abraham's story, too. So Abraham, if he had placed his hope in his own efforts, he would have never continued on for another 14 years to see the birth of Isaac. His hope would always disappoint him if he sought to just manufacture a solution outside of God's will. And so we should study the biblical models and to seek this grace of God to imitate their faith and even to learn from their failures. Note their weaknesses and and, and even despite that, their, their dependence, their recognition of their need for God, for wisdom and guidance. We can appreciate God's sovereign will to utilize the foolish and the weak to shame the wise and the strong. He places his treasured message in fragile jars of clay in order to emphasize the power is in God and not the vessel of the message. And so Abraham obtained the promise of God through faith. He placed his hope in a future fulfillment that could not be obtained through obedience to the law, as Paul puts it in Romans 4, 13. Why? Because the law only brings wrath, Romans 4, 15. It perfectly points out our transgressions before a holy God. The law is not capable of transforming us. It only points out our weaknesses and our failures. And so the point of observing Abraham is to see the faithfulness of God to fulfill his promise despite his failures, Abraham's failures. 
And so this last question, we'll conclude with this, is are you grasping the assurance of hope? Are you grasping, and by that I just mean are you clinging to, are you holding on to presently the assurance of hope? And here he talks about oaths and the, and the fact that, that we use oaths to provide certain confirmation and, and that God guaranteed his promise with an oath to himself, verses 16 and 17. Oaths are, to, oaths are to be made with sober judgment. We only make them when we're participating in something significant. Right? They're used to confirm that a person is testifying to something they know to be true. Therefore, the nature of God's promise supports the certainty of its fulfillment. God ordains whatever comes to pass. And when he sought to confirm that decree in his covenant with Abraham, he attached an oath to it. He swore that he would take the curse of covenant breaking upon himself if either party of the covenant were unfaithful. That's the picture you find of that in that covenant ceremony in Genesis 15 that I mentioned earlier. God passes through this bloody aisle of animal carcasses that Abraham had set up in order to suggest that the curse of death that had fallen upon these animals would fall upon him if the covenant was broken. But instead of Abraham taking the same oath, instead of him going through the same aisle, where was Abraham? God had put him to sleep so that he might perform the ceremony entirely alone. In other words, no one else can take this oath and no one else will receive this curse but God. All of it rests upon the faithfulness of God. God would secure his promise based upon the unchangeable character of his purpose, as the author of Hebrews says. And he concludes with with three things in verses 18 through 20. And all of them point us to Christ. They give us a picture of Jesus as the fulfillment of those covenant promises. This promise was a seal of the gospel. Jesus would receive the curse of our unfaithfulness as he hung upon the cross, and we would receive the blessing of eternal life through faith. And so the quality of his promise and oath encourages us to hold fast. Verse 18. But the three examples, the three images that he gives is first Christ as our refuge in verse 18. When the author refers to we who have fled for refuge, he's including all of them along with himself in that covenant community. We who have fled for refuge. Everyone within the church has fled for refuge from the wrath to come. It's It's like this is a city of refuge. We who were murderers, are now fleeing to to the only hope we have in Christ. Verse 19 gives us a second image, Christ as our anchor. Our hope is a steadfast anchor of the soul, enabling communion with our great high priest. It connects back to that full assurance that, that he mentioned, this full assurance of hope back in verse 11. So he illustrates this immovable quality of the hope that you have in Christ. Anchors imply the possibility of storms. In fact, it expects the storm to come. 
but it also provides the stability and the safety to endure. So Christ is our refuge, Christ is our anchor, and then lastly, verse 20, Christ is our forerunner. Jesus is the forerunner of our entrance into the Holy of Holies. It says he entered into the Holy of Holies behind the curtain as our forerunner, implying that we'll follow him there too, into communion with God face to face. And he serves as our perpetual high priest, as he concludes. And we'll, we'll talk a lot about Christ as our high priest as we get to chapter 7. But what gives our hope its stability is the person in whom it is placed. And it's not the firmness of our grip, but the object of our faith that keeps us secure. R.C. Sproul emphasizes this. He says, we are secure not because we hold tightly to Jesus, but because he holds tightly to us. And so the oath of God was meant to convince the heirs of the covenant that includes all who become children of Abraham by faith, Galatians 3, 7. Our assurance is based upon the immutability of God, his unchanging character. He does not change, so we know that his promises will not fail. And if you have fled for refuge in the church, we will need encouragement to persevere in hope. And because we have a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the Father who is perpetually available for us, we can enter into the Holy of Holies anywhere and anytime. And so the refuge from the storm, the anchor of our soul, and the forerunner of our communion with God is the person of Jesus Christ. Now we can be sure of better things because we know who holds us fast. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this precious promise. We recognize how easy it is for our desires to be fickle, to be changing. Even our own promises, we, we can't fulfill them. And so we look with a, a fickle hope oftentimes. We look to the future with pessimism. Lord, may that never be true of the reality of our inheritance that is based upon the promises that you've given us in your word. May we have a, a true and a steadfast hope. Lord, a hope that can only come by your spirit at work in us. Lord, remind us of what Christ has done for us that we might have that steady anchor for our soul. We will come here as a refuge from, from a chaotic world. And Lord, we will continue to, to pursue that, that love that is available, Lord, that, that hope that we find here as we serve one another were changed and transformed. Lord, that, that takes place through this communion that we have even now. Lord, as we, we gather together as saints, we sit under the preaching of your word, we sing, we pray, 
we have these ordinary means of grace, as we call them. But and it's through those, those means that you are strengthening our faith, that you're establishing our hope. So may we respond with confidence as we sing, recognizing who it is that holds us fast. It's in Christ's name we ask it. Amen. Well, I invite you to stand as we sing our hymn of response, He Will Hold Me Fast. You'll find that in your song insert in your bulletin.